everyone. This is Grace Alone, Solo Graceo, with a special holiday Dragon Babies mini episode. I have been thinking a lot about Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen lately. Um, and then when I started reflecting on why, I realized that I'm kind of always thinking about it. And I do feel that this is a larger cultural obsession that I'm just going to insist that we all share. Hence, you've all been waiting for me to release an episode diving into this fairy tale, its ramifications on fantasy as a whole, and in particular, my favorite edition, which is illustrated by Mary Engelbright and came out in 1993, aka peak grace reading season. <laughs> Not really, I was six, but when I did receive this book for Christmas a few years later, it gripped me, mind and soul. And in fact, I spent Christmas reading and rereading it instead of playing with the glow-in-the-dark closet drawing tool that I also received that year. It was a big Christmas. So, if you, like me, are obsessed with icy ladies in shattered castles and little girls on northern quests to find their little neighbors who went missing on sleds, this is the episode for you. This is a cold book, so grab a tea, a hot cocoa, a warming soup, pull up a blanket and a cozy chair, and settle in as we journey into Lapland. The Snow Queen is an original story written by Hans Christian Andersen. I always mispronounce his name. I'm going to try to keep it consistent here. As you know, that is a significant struggle here at Dragon Baby is correct pronunciation. The story was published just before Christmas in December of 1844. And it was published with a selection of other stories, original works by Hans Christian Andersen that would go on to become similarly influential and important. The story was published in Dutch, and there are a few different translations, so if some of the wording of any specific quotes I refer to sound a little different than what you remember, I'm blaming it on that, I guess, <laughs> not my own incorrect research. The Snow Queen influenced so many different writers and works, specifically ones that we've covered on the podcast as well. Definitely C.S. Lewis's The White Witch from the Chronicles of Narnia, and then also, in my opinion, a lot of the story in The Golden Compass. Also in my research, I saw quite a few articles that said Disney cited The Snow Queen as the inspiration for Frozen, which I don't understand at all, other than that there is a queen who has some kind of snowy, icy powers. Um, I think that's kind of a really broad working backwards from like the most basic story elements comparison. Um, but yeah, the stories are completely different and the Snow Queen is so superior to Frozen that I can't even tell you it. I'm sorry if my eight-year-old sister Isa is listening to Malign Frozen in such a way. So I'm going to be discussing both the original fairy tale and the illustrated adaptation that I mentioned by Mary Engelbright. 
I know that on a podcast, talking about illustrations is not the smartest thing to do, but I strongly encourage you to head to our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and Twitter at dragonbabiespod to see some of the accompanying visuals. First of all, let's start with the overarching plot structure, the general points that we move through as we enter this story. It is technically a story told in seven stories. Um, That's the way that Anderson framed it. And the stories proceed thusly. The first is called The Mirror and Its Fragments, and it's about a little bad guy. Um, He's called many different things in different translations. Sometimes he's a hobgoblin, a demon, a sprite, the devil himself. Suffice it to say, he wants to unleash chaos and he has found this really cool, if you're him, mirror, which shows everything beautiful as an ugly version of itself. And then everything that is already evil shown even more atrociously than it's actually perceived. It's kind of hard to explain, actually. I want to talk more about this later. It's a surprisingly complex magical device and plot catalyst. This little sprite hobgoblin demon devil smashes the glass into a million fragments because he and his little goblin friends were flying too close to the sun with it. And from there, the pieces fall down to earth and work their way into all sorts of difficult places, including people's eyes and hearts. And if a person is to receive a shard of this mirror in their eye or their heart, they can begin to feel coldly toward the world or see all around them as reflected through the mirror's terrible powers. I wonder if anything is going to happen with that. (laughs) Let's find out. Story two, a little boy and a little girl. Here we meet Kay and Gerda, a little boy and little girl who live next door to each other in garrets. And between their two roofs are a little adjoining garden. In this garden, there are gorgeous roses that grow down over a little area they've put together where they can sit between their houses and read and play and look at the flowers and just be best friends. The boy and girl are hanging out one day and Kay, the little boy, says that he got something in his eye. This is also after he saw a mysterious snowy woman at the window one night, important detail. He thinks he gets it out, but oh no, it was actually a shard of the evil mirror glass, and it works his way deep in and lodges there. And Kay begins to see things a little bit differently. He very quickly becomes irony poisoned. He is super cynical and critical of everything around him. Instead of seeing a beautiful flower, he sees the worm. And he's always correcting people, and he also becomes very good at imitating people around town, although it sounds like they're very unpleasant imitations. Gerda still stands by his side. He's her best friend. She loves him, and she wants to support him. 
but things get a little more complicated and he begins playing with the older boys more so than hanging out with Gerda. The little boys in town like to attach their sleds to carts and horse-drawn carriages that come through and ride along behind them, a hop-on, if you will, and ride behind them until they decide they've had enough and untie their sleigh. One day, Kay sees a beautiful, large, white carriage that's being driven by a shrouded figure and attaches his sled and stays with it way out of town. Every time he thinks he's going to untie it, the driver turns and kind of gives him a little thumbs up, (laughs) a nod, and he decides he'll stay on. Eventually, he realizes that the driver is the Snow Queen and she pulls him into her carriage and gives him a little kiss. And this numbs him and erases the memories of his loved ones. So he goes along with her to her castle. And that's the last we hear of Kay until the end of the book. Meanwhile, let's get to story three. The Flower Garden of the Woman Who Could Conjure. Gerda has been unsurprisingly concerned as Kay just doesn't come home. And in fact, doesn't come home for months. She for a while thinks that he's probably dead, but has a sneaking suspicion from various sources such as the sunshine and the sparrows that actually maybe he's not, maybe he's okay. She decides that the only thing she can do is head out and try to find him. She tries to throw away her favorite things, her red shoes into the river as a sort of offering to the river in case he drowned there. But the river keeps shooing her little shoes back to her. So it means that he did not, in fact, drown in the river. And instead, she gets into a little boat to try to put her shoes further out. And the boat just drifts off and her journey has begun. She ends up at a witch's house who looks to Gerda like a nice old lady. And the old lady brushes her hair and says, stay here with me, have some cherries. And along the hair brushing and the cherry eating way, she too loses all her memories of home. The old woman hides the roses in her garden because she doesn't want Gerda to have memories of her home. And Gerda spends a not insignificant amount of time there. In the original story, not so in many adaptations for reasons that I understand, she ends up talking to each of the specific types of flowers growing in the garden, and each flower has its own story to tell her. These range from benign to disturbing to totally incomprehensible. Um, Anderson actually wrote to a friend that he, quote, I have a lot of material. For me, it is often as if every wooden fence, every little flower said, look at me for a little while and you'll know what my story is. And if I do, then I have this story. And <laughs> the one of the reviewers of the story actually worried that his imagination had run so wild that children reading the story wouldn't actually understand the flower stories. And as an adult who didn't understand the flower stories, I concur. Anyway, the roses come up out of the soil because Gerda cries into it and the healing power of tears, which returns again and again throughout the story, brings them back and they say, we were in the ground and Kay was not down there. He's not dead. Go get him. She runs out of the witch's house and ends up heading into 
story number four, the prince and the princess. Here, Gerda meets a wonderful crow who, uh, whose sweetheart works in the local palace. And he tells her that he thinks Kay might be there because the princess was looking for a suitor, looking for a husband. And she wanted someone who would actually be able to talk to her and answer honestly and as an individual entity when someone would ask him a question, which same. Um, And a nice guy with a little backpack who was very shabby came and talked to her and they were wed. Gerda says, okay, nice guy. Maybe it's not a backpack. Maybe it's a sled. I got to check it out. So she heads to the castle and the crow's sweetheart, who has a very cute little necklace on in the illustrated edition, takes her through the palace where she discovers that sadly the prince is not Kay, but fortunately the prince and princess want to lavish her with ridiculous gifts that will supposedly help her on her journey. Unfortunately, all that these ostentatious gifts do is draw the attention of a local band of robbers. Entering the fifth story, the little robber girl. There are some pretty violent robbers who in the original story are about to eat Gerda in the adaptation just, you know, brandish a knife. There's no mention of like succulent little girls. <laughs> There's the original. Fortunately, the little robber daughter of the main robber woman says, don't hurt her. She's going to sleep in my bed with me and be my playmate. And I also want to wear her nice muff that she got from the prince and princess. So leave her alone. Gerda spends a little bit of time with the robbers, but ultimately persuades the robber girl to help her escape because she needs to continue on her quest. The robber girl does so and also gives her her reindeer who is from Lapland and who knows the way north so that he can carry Gerda there. Sixth story, the Lapland woman and the Finland woman in this illustrated edition, it is the Finnmark woman. I'm assuming that Engelbright wanted to make the place names a bit more fanciful um, instead of having them actually rooted in our real world. Gerda and the reindeer first meet a woman who lives in a hut who tells them that they have much farther to go in order to get to Finnmark, Finland, and gives them a piece of dried fish with some instructions written on it. When they get there, they go inside a sauna where there's another nice woman who is willing to help them. She puts ice on the reindeer's head so he doesn't get too hot. It's very cute. And she tells the reindeer, I can't give Gerda any great power to help her succeed in this quest. She is already guided by the greatest power of all, her childlike innocence. Don't you see how everyone wants to help her? So you need to go deliver her into the Snow Queen's kingdom and then just come right back here. She has to do this by herself. There, Gerda is confronted by the icy, snowy shapes of the Snow Queen's army. It's very scary, but she begins saying a little prayer. From her prayer, from her little breath clouds, comes a force of angels that stands around her and protects her. Seventh story, the Snow Queen's castle and what happened there at last. Here we get a little update on Gay for the first time since he disappeared. He has been living in the Snow Queen's palace, trying to learn all that there is to learn, and also trying to use broken shards of glass on this vast mirror of understanding, which is big shattered lake. 
to spell out the word that will free him from the Snow Queen, which is eternity. But he can't seem to do it. He's getting colder all the time. He's numb to anything. He cannot remember his life. It's a bad scene. The Snow Queen leaves to put some snow on some volcanoes. Don't ask me. It's her business. And Gerda shows up and kisses Kay and cries on him and her tears enter his little eye and they melt the splinter and then they enter his heart that's been numbed and frozen by the Snow Queen's kisses and they melt it and Kay remembers his life. He remembers his Gerda and the ice shards on the lake get so happy and excited that they get up and dance and when they lay back down, they spell out eternity. So Kay and Gerda say, okay, we can go when the Snow Queen gets back she'll see. You spell out the word, which allows you to not only have everything in the world, but also a new pair of skates. Kay and Gerda head back home. They wander back to their town. It takes some time. They check on the crow, who in the original story is dead, and the adaptation is just retired. I don't know how I feel about that parallel. And they see the robber girl who's on her own adventures. And by the time they've arrived home, they look at one another and realize they have grown up and also that it is summer, summer, warm and delightful summer. This last line is translated different ways, but the intent remains the same. And I don't know if there's a better way to end any tale than with the promise of life in summer ahead. And Engelbreit's book ends with a two-page illustration that is just so beautiful. It has remained firmly in my mind since I first read this of Kay and Gerda looking down over a sort of three-dimensional map of the places they've been and the people who have helped them and hindered them. (laughs) And off in the far distance is the glittering Snow Queen's castle. And there's some nice ravens flying around too for Madeline. So getting into analysis, getting into my new impressions after rereading this, I've distilled some points as to why I and we as a society are so obsessed with the Snow Queen. What makes it so different from many other classic fairy tales? Number one, complex moral underpinnings. This harkens back to what I was mentioning about the cursed mirror being an interesting magic item. When I first read this as a kid, I misunderstood it. I was thinking that it made evil things look appealing and good things look unappealing, but it actually makes everything look bad. And The mirror is just too compelling to follow such a simple binary (laughs) narrative. It makes both good and bad look even worse than they are. And I think in this way, it helps introduce the appeal of evil and understanding what makes it so seductive. I was really fascinated by this concept when I was young, um, and I think it's just much more interesting than other similar fairy tales moralities. There's also a lot of religion, particularly Christian undertones and and overtones. Sometimes it's pretty explicit. Gerda produces the angels by saying 
the Lord's Prayer. There are Bible verses, the one that is read by, I think, Kay's grandmother at the end. Except ye become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God, which is kind of a perfect tie-in to Anderson's actual thesis of the story, which is that goodness and innocence and love will triumph over cold, calculated reason. In doing research for this, I learned more about how he came back again and again to this concept throughout his work. And it also has a strong biblical connection to the Garden of Eden with the discovery of knowledge, meaning expulsion from paradise. Um, Speaking of paradise, it also makes me think of Paradise Lost, of the fall of the mirror, mirroring the fall of the devil from heaven when he is cast down to earth. So lots to think about there. <laughs> um, and grappling with the actual identity of the mirror and what it would make my own world look like remains super compelling. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know what that would be like. I don't, I don't want a shard of my eye, but it might be interesting for a little while. <laughs> Point number two, a really cool quest structure. So first of all, the hero is a little girl, a little girl who travels through space and time to save her boy neighbor is just so appealingly different from the other classic stories that a lot of us grew up on. Uh, Kay is literally doing nothing <laughs> for the majority of the story. Um, well, Gerda is braving ice and snow, enchantments, um, ticklish robber knives, <laughs> and forging a path to him, um, all while not even knowing that he's actually alive. Another interesting component of the funny narrative is that we never see the antagonist actually deal with any consequences. Like her exit from the story is just her going off to frost over some volcanoes. Um, She never comes back. There's no battle. Um, There's no punishment. Like there's not even the mildest resistance to her. Actually, she's just kind of doing her thing. And the letters are there to excuse Kay and Gerda when she returns. So they are not concerned about her. And I found that really fascinating too, because there is such a strong message of good and evil. But I also wonder whether the Snow Queen can even truly be classified as evil. She does represent the rejection of innocence and the embrace of cold reason, like I mentioned, but she's applying it in the only way that she knows how. Is she actually being bad? You tell me. Point three, multiple perspectives. I think some of the most accessible children's literature employs this device because it just makes it more appealing, especially when you're just beginning to read, getting a point of view through multiple characters' own eyes. And it also just adds a lot of humor to the story because we're cutting between Gerda being daring and adventuring across the planet and then Kay just listlessly rearranging shards of ice. (laughs) So... Which path would you take? Be honest with yourself. Point number four, robber girls 
are the best. And having covered Ronia, the robber's daughter for the podcast, I know I'm biased, but the name unnamed robber girl in this story really harkens back to Ronia in the best way. Um, although Ronia is obviously a softer version and of course came much later, but I just like getting to spend time with a violent little girl because that's not a common character type. And they seem to, you know, Ronya and this rubber girl have their animal cadre. They have a sort of control over the robber band and know how to get their way. And they also have an agency that is different from a lot of young women and girls in stories from this period, um, rather than being on a prescribed path of marriage, child rearing, et cetera, or just peasantry along with all that they are able to do as they please. And the robber girl's ending is really fun to me that she is heading out into the world to go off on her own adventures. Point number five, rereading this, I spent a lot of time thinking about invisible illness and particularly the invisibility of mental illness because Kay's shard of glass can't be seen by anyone or by himself, but it's profoundly affecting the way he perceives the world. And I don't want to draw a direct comparison between an evil mirror shard and mental illness, but there is a significant parallel that I couldn't stop thinking about, about one's brain not functioning the way I would like it to, and the mirror shard changing K from the inside out. And through this, there is a really beautiful message because he's still loved and supported by Gerda, even though he is functioning differently. And it is her innocent and open love that allows her to see past his cynicism rather than seeing it as entirely him. And she, even after his mirror change, talks about how smart he is, how he can do mathematics up to fractions, and how much she admires him. And I don't think that's being painted as evil or bad, um, but getting into the complex morality piece of the story, um, I do think it's very connected. And Another cool part of the messaging is that Kay receives that shard through random chance. So he's not being punished. There's no underlying reason why he was impacted rather than Gerda or anyone else in their town. Um, he was just in that place at that time. I found a really great piece by Dr. Oliver Turrell on, of interestingliterature.com um, that has really succinct, clear analysis of some of the themes, especially viewed through the body of Anderson's work. They talk about, you know, what does love triumph over in the Snow Queen? Cold Reason might be one answer, but... Then blind romanticism and idealism are just as flawed. But they go on to say, quote, Yet this isn't how Anderson intends to analyze or scrutinize his tale. He clearly was a romantic who was unhappy with the way the world really was and felt that love and beauty should triumph over intellectualism and rationalism. If the ultimate message of the fairy tale, when reduced to its core elements, is trite, love and beauty triumph over scientism scientism and realism love if you will conquers all and if that message even rings a little hollow to those of us who have spent a little time in the real world then such flaws are easily swept away by the captivating beauty of the tale itself 
with its use of icy landscapes, clear and powerful symbolism, the mirror, the tears, the snow and ice itself, and refusal to follow the prince plus peasant girl equals marriage formula, beloved of many writers of fairy tales. So, unquote. So this is, you know, obviously a bit more critical than I'm being of the story, but I agree that we're getting to the heart of what Anderson intended to do. And then I also appreciate the commentary on the aesthetic value of the Snow Queen as a story, which brings me to my next point. The writing is really good. And granted, I'm reading an English translation and there are some weird ones out there on the internet that have like a lot of garbled grammatical errors. Um, I will put a really great one that I found on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. Anderson was an incredible writer. The specificity of many of the moments throughout the tale, I think are that, that kind of writing is sorely lacking in a lot of these older archetypal fairy tales. I love, in particular, that Kay is promised by the Snow Queen as a reward for laying down the word eternity. Quote, you shall be your own master, and I will give you the whole world and a new pair of skates, unquote. That's just such a funny detail to add on. And the inherent humor of a phrase like, the whole, I will give you the whole world, followed by, and also specifically this cute little pair of skates. Um, it's just so well done. Other moments I love, even though this is horrible, the way that the robber girl loves to tickle her reindeer with his knife to make him, with her knife to make him nervous. Um, is, is like, what? <laughs> so weird. I mean, yeah, that's animal abuse. I'm not advocating it, but it's another moment where it's like, I, this just isn't what I expect from a fairy tale that came out in 1844. I also love the flowers stories, even though I said myself, I didn't understand them. I don't, I mean, no one does. They're very like Lewis Carroll-y. But I love getting to spend time with each of these particular flowers. I love all the different animal characters, the sweetheart crow and the other crow, like talking about their relationship and their engagement. Like, how are how do crows get engaged? I don't know. Um, I know that I'm switching between crow and raven. Sorry about that. The the snow chickens that run behind the snow queen's sleigh. There's there's just so much in this story. Um, it's so rich, and I uh, was very very impressed by the writing. Taking a look at it through older eyes. This brings me to my final point, point six, which is eternity. <laughs> I think this story does a lot to introduce young people, young readers to both their own innate power of their young and innocent understanding of the world and how that becomes even more powerful when it is paired with the importance of recognizing our own mortality and what it means and how that recognition actually shapes a fulfilling life because you can't have life without death. Um, I think it really accomplishes this through 
the lovely melancholy of the seasons changing as the story goes on. And ending with summer, as I mentioned, has always felt really impactful to me. The last page of the book, even from a young age, um, sometimes makes me cry. It's so overwhelming. The promise of the warmth, the fruiting, (laughs) the experience of the summer of your life, but followed by the knowledge that fall will arrive and ultimately winter will come. And the changing seasons are also reflected in all of the natural magic that you see throughout the book. Um, There's a lot of pagan feeling moments. There are many different witches, notably a lot of magical women, no magical men. Um, I loved the Lapland woman and the Finnmark woman when I was younger because they are living in the former in what is described as a hut. It looks so cozy. She has her cool fish skin to write notes on. Mary Engelbright's work is so laden with gorgeous detail and I just wanted to grow up to become her. We don't have an illustration of the Finnmark woman but I thought it was so cool that she lived in what is likely a sauna, like a traditional Finnish sauna. It's described as, uh, there they knocked at the chimney of the Finnmark woman, for she had not even a hut. And there was such a heat in the chimney that the woman at once loosened little Gerda's dress, took off the child's mittens and boots, and then laid a piece of ice on the reindeer's head. (laughs) When she's done reading the instructions on the fish skin, she puts it in her soup. That's some great pretend food right there for you. And there is also the component of prayer magic, which was more impactful to me as a young person because I was very religious I am no longer religious. Um, And there is, the book is so laden with Christianity that could be off putting for some. It actually did not bother me. I think because of the pagan components that follow along with the other magical moments in the book, talking to animals, the power of the earth and the flowers in each of their languages, um, specifically crows language is mentioned at one point um, that people can use to speak with the birds. So it did feel tempered by that. I don't know if Madeline would like it as much, (laughs) but I still find the angel soldiers rising from her breath pretty cool. And the Bible verse is apt. The Bible has some beautiful language in it. I will always admit I've read plenty of it. I should know. And like Dr. Turrell mentioned in their analysis that I quoted, we can't just reduce the story to a very basic, simple tension between blind idealism and cold cynicism. That Bible verse quoted at the end deals with that. It Because it says, except ye become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. But then in that very same moment, Gerda and Kay are reflecting on the fact that they have grown. Um, physically, they have 
matured and entered into a new phase of their lives. So we're also looking at the concept of innocence along with the concept of wisdom and how those two enter into conversation with one another. Lots to think about. Talking a little bit specifically about Mary Engelbright's art now. Again, you can see these incredible illustrations on our website, Instagram, and Twitter. She deals with color in a way that I've always been pretty obsessed with. Um, I also highly recommend following her on Instagram. She does these sort of uh, grim and moody pieces that she calls Mary Engel Dark (laughs) as her counterpart. Um, And all of her work is just so great. Her work really captures this story so well because we get all of the bursts of life from the Blooming Roses, the picture of Gerda and Kay, the illustration of Gerda and Kay sitting between their houses in the garden, reading a book together, all round-faced and rosy-cheeked. Also, everyone has gorgeous Scandinavian traditional clothing. Like, the patterns and fabrics represented are so beautiful. I, I want all of Gerda's and, as I mentioned, the Lapland woman's outfits. The animals look so sweet, but they still retain a little bit of their wildness. They're not totally Disney-fied. All of the food represented, as you can probably predict, I absolutely love. There are these glowing, just glistening little cherries that Gerda is eating as the witch brushes her hair, her hat featuring the rose that ultimately causes Gerda to remember what she's actually doing there is prominently featured. Um, I also saw one of the original illustrations for the story um, that is laid out very similarly. So I think it's a nice homage to that, that Engelbright did. Um, And here again, such lovely detail. There are mice running at their feet, The woman has a key ring hinting at her imprisonment of Gerda, Um, but the key ring also has a little trowel and a pair of scissors on a ribbon next to it, so that softens the effect. Her chair has globes featuring stars on it, so we're getting hints of her witchiness. And then Gerda's beautiful hair is tumbling over her shoulders, and she has on a floral-patterned black shirt with ruffled sleeves that ends at at the elbows, over which is what looks like a little blue wool vest trimmed in red, this magnificent checkered apron over a red and yellow striped full skirt, all the way down to her little orange striped socks. I mean, your eyes just want to feast upon these pieces. The rendering of the Snow Queen is also very interesting. I've looked at a lot of pictures of the Snow Queen over the last week, and this is a slightly softer Snow Queen, I would say. We really only see her a few times. She There's an illustration of her riding in her sleigh with her hair flowing behind her. Then one, which is also featured on the cover of her actually holding Kay in the sleigh. I'm imagining right after she kissed him. And this time her hair has blown upwards into what looks like a sort of headdress with a an icy diamonded crown below it. 
And she has a look of real peace and contentment holding Kay. There's there's never any furrowed brow or signs of a mean old witch. I, I think she's I think she's rendered more as someone who is lonely. I I don't when we think about her motive, I, I don't really know how we could come to what it is. We don't get enough information about her, but I don't think it is purely the intent to corrupt innocence, um, especially considering yeah, the more complex morality components of the story that we've discussed. I think it's more to find some company and the fact that she's making Kay spell out eternity to gain his freedom feels wrapped up in that as well. He has to acknowledge forever in order to escape it. Am I going too deep? I don't know. I've, I love this Snow Queen. <laughs> Some odds and ends here. Also wanted to mention, um, you know, this is an old impression that still lingers with me to this day, but reading this as a kid, I couldn't stop thinking about Santa. It's like, where does Santa live in this universe? Like, the Snow Queen is in Lapland. Shouldn't Santa be there? Where is the North Pole? Like, how does that all work out? It seems like Santa and the Snow Queen are opposing forces. (laughs) Like, why isn't he getting involved? Um, Which also made me think of a book that I was equally obsessed with as a kid that was all about the the history of Santa and Santa's life with these incredible illustrations. It's called The Santa Claus Book. It's by Alden Perks. It came out in 1982. Wow, I haven't looked at this cover in... A long time. Yeah, A History of Santa Claus and His Elves describes the day-to-day adventures of the large-bearded elf as he prepares for and completes his annual rounds. It's so specific about Santa's home and life that it really makes it impossible to not consider the wider-reaching ramifications of the Snow Queen also being in the general geographic area. And uh, the illustrations are so fun. They're really magnificent. So I'll put up a picture of this as well. If if you're a Santa lover or you have a Santa lover in your life, highly recommend this. And I think that wraps up my overlong discussion of my very personal feelings about the Snow Queen. I would love to hear from you about how you feel about the Snow Queen. Um, What is your favorite Hans Christian Andersen story? How would you adapt this? There have been a lot of weird animated adaptations, including a Russian one from the 50s. It looks kind of fascinating that I might ask Madeline to check out. Let me know. I want to hear it all. You can get in touch with us on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast.com, Twitter at Dragon Babies Pod. And we also are now on Patreon. We're calling it our Babe Treon. For $3 a month, you get an extra episode every month. It's a little looser and wider reaching, cover a broader range of topics, adaptations, things like that. Patreon.com backslash Dragon Babies, and you can sign up as well. I hope this episode adds to your general wintry, winter solstice, post-holiday, new year, all the tender, fragile hopes that lie ahead vibe. And 
I am so happy to be entering 2023 with all of y'all. I'm Grace. Until next time.